Hello, podcast listeners. I want to add a quick note at the top to let you know that we had some audio issues with Dr. Mary Carol Combs in our interview. I've done some heroics to save the audio so that it can be used, but you'll notice that it's not at the same quality as, as previous episodes. If you like, you can go to my YouTube page where I have posted a video and I have a transcript running underneath our video so that you can follow along for some of the difficult parts where the audio has a tendency to drop out here and there. So I apologize for the audio issues this week. This is a really important discussion on bilingual education and focused here in the state of Arizona and the current controversy going on with the superintendent, Tom Horn, and his bilingual, anti-bilingual policies. This discussion is not just important for the state of Arizona. It's important for our entire country. I'm going to skip the intro music today and get right into it. Thank you. All right. Welcome, everyone, to Reviving Virtue. Today, we're going to do an episode that focuses on an, an issue here in Arizona where this podcast is based, but has international ramifications as well. We are honored to have with us Dr. Mary Carol Combs, an esteemed professor from the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Sociocultural Studies at the University of Arizona. Dr. Combs started her journey as an ESL teacher and later evolved into a bilingual education policy analyst. Her extensive career reflects a unique amalgamation of practical teaching and theoretical exploration. Dr. Combs is renowned for her work in the realms of language and education policy, second language acquisition, and preparing educators for a diverse classroom, including immigrant, refugee, and citizen second language learners. Dr. Combs received the Graduate Teaching and Mentoring Award in 2021 in recognition of her dedication. In today's episode, we are set to delve into the nuances of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, interweave it with the notion of language activism, and scrutinize this complex tapestry against the backdrop of an escalating controversy in Arizona. This contentious issue has been sparked by Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tom Horn, who recently leveled accusations at education professors claiming that they are ideologically driven when it comes to their support for bilingual education and chastising them to, as quote, oblivious to real world data. These remarks, viewed by many as a challenge to the role of and relevance of academia in shaping effective educational policies, have ignited a lively debate about the intersection of education, language, and ideology. So, without further ado, Dr. Combs, we are thrilled to have you on Reviving Virtue. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. This is great. So, there's so much I want to discuss, and I think we should just get right into it. Before we dive into the topic that we just mentioned at the top, I was hoping we can learn about your motivations and to get into the space of language and education policy. As you mentioned in the intro, I started my teaching career as an ESL teacher in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. I taught at a high school, I taught at community colleges, and then while I was getting my graduate degree at Georgetown, I was teaching at some private language institutes as well. And at the time, I, I learned about bilingual education. So my my training really was in applied linguistics and English. He discovered bilingual education and learned about the role of the first language in helping students acquire English, but also in maintaining connections to their family members. And that's important for developing a healthy social and linguistic identity. When I was in Washington, I also worked for a couple of nonprofit organizations on reauthorizations of the Bilingual Education Act. And that just means working with congressional members and their staff to revisit and rework different versions of the act to make sure that it continued to serve bilingual 
and English learning students in school districts. So I was hoping we can get into the discussion of pedagogy of the oppressed and why this book is so important. I read it recently and was very moved by it. And in another podcast I produce, I asked every guest at the end of the podcast to recommend one book to the audience. And the last guest we had on there said Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So this book is obviously very popular and the book has had a profound impact on people. Could you shed some light on what makes Pedagogy of the Oppressed such a significant piece of work in the context of language and education policy? And also, how do you think its principles can influence and enhance the way we approach these areas? Sure. Um, I also want to sort of, you know, be honest about the fact that when I first read Pedagogy of the Oppressed several decades ago, I found it difficult. You know, that that is, it was theoretically dense, abstract, and also the book's not is not just about education, but about other things like the complicated and dehumanizing effects of colonialism in Brazil. So when you read this book, you are also reading about history, economic disparity, agrarian reform, deficit perspectives teachers had for students and other issues interwoven in education. So Pedagogy of the Oppressed was written by uh, Paulo Freire, a Brazilian educator. He was also a, a social historian who was interested in exploring how education could be either oppressive or great, depending in part on the degree to which teachers actively incorporated the lives, experiences, and knowledge of their students into the daily lessons they created for them. I think in order to understand the lasting impression this book still has on educators worldwide, it's helpful to look at the historical context in which Freire developed the ideas that appeared in them. You have to remember that in, in Brazil, centuries of oppression had submerged, and that's a term that Freire uses a lot, but it had submerged people into what he called a, quote, culture of silence, unquote. So, People did not or could not speak out against the semi-feudal conditions they lived and worked in. They also believed they had nothing to contribute to uh, Brazilian society other than their labor. Freire's approach to literacy included helping rural farmers, and those were his students, understand that their labor, or probably more precisely the products of their labor, was a form of culture so that they were cultural workers. Paulo Freire began theorizing his ideas about education, especially literacy, in the late 19th in rural northeastern Brazil. Now, at the time, the illiteracy rate among rural farmers was very high. So he pioneered, innovated in even radical approaches to literacy instruction that continued to be used in literacy campaigns around the world. There were a number of steps, and I'll just focus on some of them, but once he was in the countryside, he gathered people into what he called culture circles. And these were often outside, literally under the trees, rather than in conventional classrooms and desks. But he saw circles as a group of individuals involved in a shared cultural activity, like literacy acquisition. So then Freire would initiate a dialogue about a generative word and that is a word that, literally a word, that came from learners' daily lives. And Freire showed them how this word could be phonetically broken down into syllables and then recombined into different syllables and into new words. 
So in this way, he showed them the structure of um, Portuguese and how words fit together and how by reconfiguring the order of syllables, students could create new words. Uh, but he, he just didn't stop there. He asked students to talk about the words, share their own interpretations about, in that way, participants had deep conversations where they discussed the words and they actively attempted to resolve problems posed to other members within the circle. So this strategy, this approach led to that some in our field have called a sort of problem-posing education. Now, from this process, what happens is that new themes surface and new solutions are discussed. And the process results in a, a deeper level of knowledge, not only among the learners, but among teachers as well. And this process of generating new words also allowed a kind of reading of reality that Freire famously expressed as, quote, reading the word and the world. But it's, it's really a collaborative dialogue. And through it, learners began to unearth were not simply linguistic, but also lyrical. And just to wrap up your, your question, Jeffrey, so Freire had several goals for this process. First, of course, was to teach basic literacy, but also to engage learners in active dialogue now, remember that these were rural farmers who historically had been treated as uneducated, illiterate, and therefore less intelligent. So Freire wanted to help create a way for them, for people submerged in this culture of silence to then, as he, he wrote a lot, to, quote, emerge as conscious makers of their own culture. Well, that's fascinating. So what I see is Freire is kind of undoing what, what the Enlightenment instituted, which is he's taking language and words and bringing the world back into it, where I feel like the Enlightenment Project separated those two and instrumentalized words to be more of a uh, quantitative, it's to describe things and to take the subject away from the world. And I and when I read this, emerge as a conscious makers of their own culture. He's reinscribing the fact that humans, the subject, that you're a subject, that you're not an object. I believe he he points that out in the book, that enlightenment and at least the framing that the elite have of the workers is that they're not, or, or the students, actually, that's the framing. The students aren't actual subjects. They're just objects to have information put into them. And then they're supposed to regurgitate that information out in some future form to create commodities for the elite class. But when I say emerge as conscious makers of their own culture, he's teaching people that they themselves have the power to not only just describe their world, but to make the world they're in. And I think that's an incredibly powerful framing uh, and liberatory. Well, and, and it, it actually speaks to not only respecting and trusting your own interpretation of the world, but also transforming the world Yes, into something much more just so I find his work to be very to infuse with justice and then in ethics and a responsibility to uh, each other. I feel that's a, a central part of his philosophy that I've read into it. But you're the expert here. So if I say anything wrong there, please let me know. <laughs> uh, so I want to move on. I want to bring this discussion back here to Arizona specifically. Your endeavor to meld critical pedagogy with the prevailing political developments in education and language policy. 
is very intriguing to me. Could you elaborate on how Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed undergirds your interpretation of these developments? And specifically, how does the seminal work offer a theoretical lens? You know, that's such a good question. And I couldn't answer it based on its influence on, on my own thinking and teaching. And the beauty of, of Freire's work is also in the very personal interpretation that his readers have, right? We bring our own experiences into the work. So that, that might mean that our interpretations are somewhat different depending on our lived experience. But for two, there, there are so many of his theories that have spoken to me and that continue to speak to me. But I'll mention two. So the first one is how he writes about teachers as learners and learners as teachers. So what he's trying to do here is disrupt this sort of binary separation between who's in charge and who's being charged in a way. And the idea suggests then that teachers are not just sole possessors of knowledge in the classroom, right? They themselves have much to learn from students because students bring important insights and experiences into the classroom. Teachers can learn them. And then in turn, learners become teachers when they share those insights with others, including their teachers. But what this implies is a degree of trust between both teachers and their roles. But it also reveals that education is relational. It depends on the relationships that we develop with students and vice versa. So that's the first one. So this idea that learners become teachers also means that teachers need to, to take risks, right, mm -hmm. in their teaching. They don't know everything. They have to try things out. They have to practice and perfect a variety of teaching strategies. And this will take time. It's the beauty of teaching as well. It's what I love about it. There's always something new to learn. But it also means, to a certain extent, that teachers need to, to assume a degree of humility. And this is something that today writes about a lot. And that's how I approach my, my own teaching. And in fact, this perspective has served me well for many years. So anyway, the second theory that I've been thinking a lot about, particularly in the light of these controversies in Arizona, is Freire's concept of political clarity. Now, in uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he doesn't explicitly define this concept, but generally we can say that it refers to the development of a critical consciousness about the world and one's place within it. So along the way, learners also develop the ability to reflect on something and then act on it. So this idea of reflection and action is at the heart of critical pedagogy, or what Freire called praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, praxis. Now, I started to think about what political clarity might mean for teachers, as well as for me as a teacher educator. And my interest in political clarity came because I wanted to understand what it meant. But and and so my my interest gradually developed, but it was influenced by restricted language policies imposed on teachers in Arizona who work with English language learners. So language policy in Arizona is complicated. But let's go back to the year 2000 when voters passed Proposition 203 an anti-bilingual education ballot initiative that forced all English learners into a program called Structured English Immersion. This is an all English program in which teachers 
we're expected to adjust their instruction to make it easier for students to follow. And this was all, all structured English conversion classrooms, by the way. You know, and as a teacher educator at that time, I can say that uh, many of the teachers in schools had not been trained in strategies to make their teaching more comprehensible. So this shift in, in policy was quite a challenge for many teachers. But at any rate, uh, just to, to clarify, before 2000, about 30% of English learners were enrolled in bilingual education in Arizona. And the goal of bilingual ed is to help students keep up with content subjects like math, social studies, science, uh, even language arts at the same time that they're learning English. But after Proposition 203 passed, that percentage plummeted mm. because essentially all bilingual classrooms became SEI classrooms. Over the years, SEI, or Structured English Immersion, morphed into an even more restrictive, and I want to add racially and linguistically segregated model, frankly, wasn't based on principles of second language acquisition, but on myths about perceived best practices, like this idea that young children should be immersed in all English instruction all day long. The best way for them to learn the language was focused was to focus on grammar and vocabulary. Now, these ideas sound reasonable, for sure, but language acquisition doesn't work that way. And just want to insert here that one of the challenges for people like me who are in language policies to try to translate bilingual education and second language acquisition theory into sort of regular language. And that's, that's difficult to do sometimes because, for example, decades of, of research have shown that kids benefit from instruction in first language and in English, but that if you, so there's a finding, a, a research finding from a lot of bilingual classrooms that the more kids are taught in their first language, the better they'll learn English. That idea is counterintuitive for most mm -hmm. folks. They just don't believe it. They don't understand it. And so it's a challenge to explain how that works. But it, it has to do with the transfer of knowledge from the first language to the second. But beyond that, of course, developing both languages is a good thing. Mm -hmm. we, we need to learn bilingual in Arizona. But for a lot of our English language learners who come from marginalized communities, maintaining their first language is a way to help maintain healthy family relationships. I'm going to jump in here for a moment. So my prior job before where I'm at now is a professional podcasting host, but I also have a, you know my, my day job. But prior to that, I spent a year in economic development. And when I got my master's in public administration and public policy, I focused on economic development. So it's something I've studied, read the papers, and also worked in the city of Tucson in economic development. And I can tell you that the number one reason why a firm will either move to Arizona or Southern Arizona or not, the number one reason is the depth of the workforce here. And, and one of the problems we have here in Southern Arizona is we have a very thin workforce, you could say. It's not very vibrant and dynamic as compared to other regions in the United States. And one of those things, reasons why is because of the education where we're having a problem with this bilingual education. So if you, if I want to give 
let's say if I want to look at what they were, the conservatives are coming from, because Tom Horn is a conservative. He's a proud conservative, you could say. They like to think about the structures of the family and family environment and also economics. And also because economics are good, if you have good jobs and you have a better society and you have like all the bad things that happen with not good jobs go away. This is what they say. So if I'm going to if I'm going to take their framing, it would seem logical to want to have, from what I'm hearing from you, a, a dual language education policy, because it will do uh, several things. I'm going to, I was going to make a number of it here, but let me just think about what you just told me here. One is that you told me that students will learn better if they learn in their second language, uh, their original language first and English. So there you'll get better students. That then converts into them being more productive workers when they enter the workforce. So then that will create more economic prosperity for Southern Arizona. They also have better family relationships when they are taught in, in their original language and English. So that actually strengthens the family unit, which again is another conservative uh, pillar. And then overall, this will then attract more economic prosperity uh, from outside of Arizona and Southern Arizona specifically to come here because they can see a more vibrant community, a, a deeper workforce, and this is a win-win for everyone. But if we want to keep this, if I want to keep this within the conservative framing of what they privilege as being the most important thing, you would want to create policy in Southern Arizona, not just Southern Arizona, all of Arizona, that privileges dual language learning because students are better, they become better economic producers if that's your main goal is the economy, and their families are stronger. And so you create better communities, which again is what we all should be working for. To me, this is how I'm interpreting what you're telling me. You know, Tom Horn has said on multiple occasions that he's in favor of bilingualism and that it's, an, it's important to be bilingual and he's not wrong. The problem is that who has access to bilingual education or now people are using the, the term dual language and children who are already bilingual, let's say Spanish, that's, that's the largest the language spoken by most second language learners in, in Arizona. The children who start out, off as bilingual have the best chance of of maintaining that bilingualism, developing an academic bilingualism, and then doing whatever they want with them. They can go into the course, they can go into the medical field. There are lots of things that these kids can do with their bilingualism. But it seems contradictory, even paradoxical to me, for Tom Horan to oppose bilingual education, which is designed not only to create a bilingual community, but a community that historically and socially has been marginalized, and which also is more often than not a community of color. And so one of the things that in his, you know, in, in his sort of rhetoric about bilingual education, but he favors bilingualism, is that the only children who are now eligible for bilingual education are sort of white, middle class, monolingual English speakers. And so in a sense, what he has done is to create a program that was designed for impoverished children mm. and elevated it in a neat model. So there, there are a lot of paradoxical things about his perspective on bilingual education. But I agree, it's important for our state, no matter what children decide to do with their bilingualism, that every child should have the same opportunity to become bilingual. Maybe what someone and others are assuming will happen is that children will remain bilingual or they will develop an advanced form of bilingualism in the family and sometimes that happens. 
But that's ignoring all of this sociological thing that kids experience what sociolinguistic language shift. And that is a phenomenon that you see all over the world when you have first and second generation children with immigrants, where parents will speak the family language, grandparents, children will become bilingual, and eventually they will lose the first language. And right now, even in state, the border state like Arizona, we are on a one generation model language shift. And that just simply means that you might have a five-year-old entering school and speaking only Spanish. By the time she graduates high school, she speaks only English. Now, she she will more than likely re retain a receptive knowledge of Spanish, meaning that she understands it, maybe even. But you have this really common phenomenon that in Spanish-speaking families, often, particularly when they're older siblings who learn English, kids will respond to parents in English, even when they know that their parents don't speak English. And that's a lost resource, quite simply. Wow. If we move on to, if we want to consider the complex pressures and unique challenges faced by teachers in, in this context here in Arizona specifically, how crucial is it for them to attain a discerning political awareness? I believe you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier in our discussion. And more fundamentally, how could you elucidate how the process of crystallizing this political clarity could potentially transfigure the educational landscape here in Arizona? Right. There are a couple ways to answer that question. And... So, well, let me explain that here in the College of Ed at the University of Arizona, all of our elementary ed students receive an ESL report in addition to a bachelor's degree certification licensure. And that, that means that they take classes in second language acquisition, applied linguistics, assessment, and instruction English learners. Political clarity for our students then means opportunities to compare research findings in, in language learning to state language policy. And I would argue that these language policies are based on ideology and ignorance to a large extent. The discussions that we have in classes about this contradiction, I think, give students a deeper understanding of this disconnect. And that means that they can reflect on the disconnect and they can simply meaning that as teachers, it can bring a more nuanced and assets-based now, we can get into this a little bit more, too, but at the moment, Tom Horn is trying to bring back restrictions on the way that school districts implement dual language programs. And I should mention that in 2019, the state legislature unanimously relaxed these restrictions. And that was because of, of the dismal academic progress that English learners made. And I can tell you, and this is sort of funny because Tom Horn basically cites one one article that's opposed to bilingual ed, not written by a bilingual educator, and doesn't have a single academic reference in it. But I can tell you that the uh, the track record on, on research on called the four hour block, which basically meant that most of the teaching day was English only, learning only grammar and building vocabulary. And these are not bad things, but specifically subjects like math and social studies and science were prohibited specifically. And as you can imagine from when, that's like almost 10 years, when uh, kids were put into these programs, their academic progress was dismal. And that led to the highest dropout rate for ELMs in the country. There was wow. a time when we were graduating one student out of five 
Whoa. ELL students. Just oh. terrible. And there are different ways, uh, different reasons why the Department of Justice and the Civil Rights got involved as well. But for these reasons, the legislature um, relaxed the res restrictions. And as I said, it was unanimous. That's almost unheard of. Now, to your question about developing among our students a, a political awareness or a political clarity, I, I really like that question. Now, going back to Freire, well, he wrote that all education is political. And that is because of the stakes involved and the fact that for those in power, students and teachers becoming critically conscious about the world and the word feels threatening. And in some ways, this is a profoundly anti-intellectual perspective. And I think it explains why Superintendent Horn has called professors bilingual and ESL in colleges of and quote, ideologically motivated, unquote, as well as oblivious to real-world data. And this is a really peculiar thing to say because he, of course, has his own ideology about how children should learn or how they should be in a world. But this is a man who maybe he reads the research, I don't know, but he discounts it and instead quotes sections of this particular piece that I, that I mentioned. It was not academic at all. It was actually written by somebody in the business world. So there, there's a major paradox. Anyway, I've been thinking a lot about what he said about professors, that they are ideologically motivated. So I've been thinking a lot about ideology and how it's defined or interpreted in these different spaces. If education is political, as Freire insists that it is, then it's incumbent upon teachers to engage pre-service teachers in dialogue about, for example, um, why education can't be neutral and that it's critical for teachers to incorporate students, family, funds of knowledge into the classroom. And I think political clarity is really important given that most pre-service teachers in Arizona, and it's not just Arizona, it's elsewhere in the nation, they're white, they're middle class, they're English-speaking women who be teaching a, a very different population of students whose linguistic and cultural experiences are really different. So for this group, political clarity means to resist the temptation to see their world, that is to say, to see the world of the students only through their own eyes and experiences, but to try to understand the world through their students' eyes. And I'm not saying that's an easy thing, but the students can help their teachers develop this ability. So anyway, speaking about political clarity, what this idea means for me is not just the sort of political aspect of education. It's not, it doesn't just mean reading the world and understanding power. It also means, as I said earlier, taking risks for new teachers, young teachers, it means mm -hmm. trying out small group and whole class applied activities, bringing in space-based approaches, unscripted theatrical improvisations, multimedia experiences, things like guest speakers from students, families, and the community. So yeah, that's good teaching, but it's also political clarity. Yeah, this is fantastic. You mentioned the unscripted theatrical improvisations. This reminds me of another book I read this year called uh, Theater of the Oppressed by Augusto Bull. Augusto yeah. yeah, that's another really great book. And I, you know, I'm going to call out one other kind of form of knowledge sharing here. You mentioned family funds of knowledge. 
And I think that's a really important concept. Can you just talk about that briefly? Because I'm not sure if our listeners may know what that is. Well, that, that's a, a, a kind of a theoretical and pedagogical approach that was developed by um, two colleagues in, in the department, both had retired, Luis Moll and uh, Norma Gonzalez. And essentially, they went into communities, they interviewed parents, they observed social activities, communal activities. And by the way, they did this with teachers, so they had, the teachers were researchers. And then together they created lesson. For example, a lot of families, for example, on the, on the south side and the west side, come from rural backgrounds in northern Sonora. And they have a lot of expertise in animal husbandry, for example, and agriculture. But these are expertises that are not always known by schools. And so um, when teachers discover, for example, that parents or even grandparents have naturopathic ways of treating cattle, if the cattle is ill, it can bring that knowledge. It's called a fund, uh, fund of knowledge. So it's a metaphor. It's a first way. Yeah, so that's essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fantastic because that incorporates the community into the knowledge learning process. And it, it also, it's respectful to the community. It's this responsibility of you're, you're teaching a child, but you're also bringing in the knowledge that their family has into the classroom, which then broadens that. It also, in my opinion, it strengthens the bonds of a community by applying this theoretical lens and actual practical application of it. So now uh, to move on, I did read a paper that you wrote, you co-wrote with Susan Penfield called Language Activism and Language Policy. Now, I found it to be incredibly illuminating exposition on language activism and extremely accessible, like written in a way that you can relate to, but it also was an aha type, like I read it and I had that aha moment, which, so I thought it was a very powerful chapter in this book on language activism. And I wanted, was hoping that you could articulate its essence. What is language activism and its vital role in the current challenges we confront in Arizona and in relation to Tom Horn's anti-bilingual policies? You know, that... That was a fun piece that uh, Susan Penfield and I wrote. And we wrote that chapter in part to kind of understand language activism ourselves, right? how it might look different in contexts and communities. And when we were conceptualizing this article, we were invited by the, the editor of the book, Bernard Spolsky, so Susan Linguist, to think about language activism. And so it was a really great opportunity for us. But at the time, both Susan and I were teaching in the American Indian Language Development Institute, which is a summer institute to train teachers. And actually, the teachers did a lot of training of the instructors as well. They were so expert. But it was an institute that was devoted to language revitalization, particularly endangered women. So we were teaching in Aldi at the time, and we had discussions about activism and policies at the time. And we were really struck by the fact that a lot of our students, most of them were deeply committed to indigenous revitalization in the community. But these teachers did not consider themselves active. There was something about the word activism that didn't sit well with this difference, this interpretation allowed us to have a really constructive dialogue with them about activism and whether it needed to be noisy or crazy or quiet in order to be effective. And of course, what we learned from them. So that, that was 
in large part a motivation for the article, but also there were, I think it was published in A12, but there, there were a lot of things happening on it, not good things. And we were trying to make sense, maybe trying to open up a space, uh, pushback against some of these really harmful policies. Mm-hmm. Or it's a kind of thought piece that it Yes, toward the end of the chapter, you express concerns about the risk activists may face by being noisy. Can you discuss the potential challenges and hurdles language activists may face in their advocacy and how they can navigate these obstacles effectively? Yeah, absolutely. So this chapter was written before the Red Shore Ad Movement. I think it's important to mention that, that form of activism that thousands and thousands of teachers took. Julie walked out and came to the Capitol. 50,000 people in April of 2019. Mm-hmm. And the Red for Ed movement captured so much attention and energy. But it was a time when teachers and districts were being pressured to implement programs and policies that basically de skilled didn't respect their knowledge. Uh-huh. Think about things like the forced implementation of scripted reading programs high-stakes testing, having to deal with underperforming or even failing labels that were really based on low test scores and it's going to do well with tests. Well, at the time, districts were closing public schools, they were opening charters. The state was pushing through vouchers and other neoliberal reforms. So that's the context. But there are potential consequences for teachers. I don't want to sugarcoat that. If a teacher expresses ideas about education and teaching that contradict these kinds of top-down policies, there there may be some consequences. For example, just this year, some of the bills introduced in the legislature included sanctions against teachers and administrators for the way they talk about race, for example, or, or gender or even having books about these these issues in school libraries. So it's another big question you asked. And, and I think it's true that the social context for young teachers, beginning teachers, also means that they're sometimes reluctant to speak up against deficit attitudes about children of color or English learning. And, and there's a power differential there as well. And they will encounter these attitudes in schools. Sometimes that makes them feel like they don't have much power. And I understand that. But at the same time, I think um, political clarity will help it. If it means reflection and action, I suggest action can take different forms, including creative assignments, collaborative activities they develop. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be noisy. Yeah, this is another seeming to me a paradox coming from uh, the conservative wing of the Arizona party because they seem to be wanting to take away agency from the teachers to who should know best about how to teach their students. They are all about localism. And so they don't want the big overbearing government telling them what to do that's far away in Washington, D.C. But then here they are implementing policies where they think they can tell a teacher who's dealing with students on a day-to-day activity what they should teach and how they should grade and what matters and what doesn't. It seems antithetical to their entire worldview. I'm being maybe I'm being a little unfair, but this is where I think there's a lot of disconnect between the two sides. And I'm again, I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, and I know that uh, this is to try to not go on for a very long time. But when I step back and, and hear what you're telling me, 
it seems completely antithetical to the foundations of, of a conservative idealism, which is that local knowledge is primary over a large, faraway, overbearing, authoritarian knowledge. But this is a very authoritarian aspect of controlling what can be taught and not taught in a classroom and telling someone who's an expert, a teacher is an expert, what they should and shouldn't do from an administrator who is not an expert, right? This is how I view it. And it's frustrating for sure. And at the end of the day, if there was humility involved and the idea of recognition and then maybe a reconciliation, kind of like a dialectic, you know, a Hegelian dialectic. But in a way, that's also what Paulo Fieri was all about in his book is in a way that, you know, we can come together through dialogue. And through this dialogue, we can build, hopefully, a more respectful society in which each side are subjects. They're not objectified. And through this process, there's a humility, which then leads to a reconciliation of ideas. Because we are, as human beings, we're always going to be within conflict, I believe. But I think currently, there's this hypercharged politicization of everything, where People aren't given the benefit of the doubt and people are objectified. Ideas are objectified. They're taken out of context. Uh, I'm getting on a little bit of a rant here, but uh, <laughs> but talking to you and hearing from your perspective, because you are, as you mentioned, I like to term, you're a teacher of teachers. You have a very unique and important viewpoint and perspective on all this. So from what I'm hearing here right now, th- these are oppressive policies. When I think of oppressive policies, I mean, this constrains the vitality of a community uh, and you can take the community framing at any level you want, whether it's a family unit, but then keep going up from a family to who's on your block, to who's in your school district, to who's in your city, and then who's in your state, that community is being constrained. And that constraint has negative externalities, right? Because then we have things where students don't perform where they should be because we have all these people trying to stick their finger in things instead of letting the teacher who spends and dedicates their lives to this doing what they do best, which is teaching students. And they know because they're in the classroom day and and day out. Well, I mentioned earlier that this is, you know, policies in Arizona. It may it may not be just Arizona, but they really they're really an anti-teacher and an anti-intellectual movement. Yeah, where you don't trust teachers, you don't care children and students. We're coming up on time. Before we end our delightful conversation here, I want to circle back to the core principle of the podcast, which is uncovering through dialogue and community interactions, a renewed set of moral vocabularies for our time that shape our narratives and guide our actions and our relationships here. Now, every language, I believe, possesses its own unique ontology or worldview, offering a spectrum of future, latent, imminent potentialities. The simultaneous existence of several languages within a community appear to me at least, to enhance the range of conceivable futures, enriching our cognitive and communicative toolkit. In the context of today's globalized world, where the dominance of a few languages is threatening the existence of others, it becomes crucial to underline the immense benefits we stand to gain by fostering the survival and thriving of these diverse languages. The preservation and advancement of linguistic diversity rather than a focus on any specific group of languages, can lead to a wider creative aperture that triggers innovation and cultural enrichment, thereby paving the way to a more inclusive, understanding, harmonious, and respectful society. At least that's what I hope. So given this perspective, how can we as individuals better promote and value linguistic diversity and its potential to contribute to our collective creative capacities and moral understandings? Well, this is kind of cliche, but keeping an open mind is all 
important. <laughs> Knowing that there are different ways to interact with the world. We all have our own ways to do this, but others, uh, I think, understanding and, and coming to believe that language is our resources and um, we should maintain them, not eradicate them. Mm-hmm. It can be resources for a variety of benefits mm-hmm. from the state. One good thing, I'm not saying easy, is to try to learn a second language yourself if you haven't already. It's one of the best ways to experience the joys and frustrations of trying to communicate in another linguistic. And this is something that I encourage teachers to do. Again, I said it's not always easy and requires some time and focus. It's well worth it. Frere always said that you, as a teacher, need to value, respect, and even love your students. He urges us to do that. And then I think remembering that learning and new experiences are exciting. Mm-hmm. Listening to one another, sort of sharing our different perspectives, um, helping people understand some of these, at least in my case, with my students in the classes, helping them understand these sorts of whole theoretical ideas. Well, that gives me a lot of joy. Well, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's a perfect note to end on. So, Mary Carol, I want to extend my heartfelt thanks for your time and invaluable insights you've shared with us today. Your contributions to the field of linguistic preservation, activism, and your promotion of the teachings, values, and insights of Paolo Freire is incredibly important work and have truly enriched our world. We are all the better for your contributions and wisdom. So thank you once again for joining us on Reviving Virtue. Thank you so much, Jeff.